um, our family, so thank you. And we do cover your prayers, uh, your ongoing friendship um, as we start the work in East Baltimore. Sometimes people say it like it's real far away. You can almost throw a rock to Greenmount Avenue from here. Uh, we're, not, we're not going very far away. Uh, but again, we head out today just greatly, uh, greatly encouraged. Um, if there is such a thing, I'm just getting my bearings here. If there is such a thing as, as a biblical church planting model where the Holy Spirit is at work and challenges are experienced and the church overcomes and succeeds because of what Jesus Christ is doing in and through people, I believe that model is in Acts chapter 11. And in just a moment, we'll begin in verse 19. But first, I would like to pray. Then I would like to set the table. And then we will jump in. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, I do thank you that you are a good and a gracious God. We are reminded, uh, Father, that you love us in spite of us, that you forgive us our sins and our shortcomings. And Father, this morning I pray that we, your people, who are called by your name, that we will humble ourselves, that we will seek your face, Father God, that we will turn from our wicked ways and hear from, and hear from you, Lord, knowing that you will forgive our sins and you will heal our land. Father, I pray this morning that we, your people, will be encouraged, that we will be convicted and transformed by the truth of your word. Father, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as a division of our souls and our spirits, God of both our joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So, Father, we pray this morning that the truth of your word will pierce our hearts. We thank you for this in advance, for you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I would like to read the text. Uh, this is um, a culmination, or I should say, well, this is uh, a great narrative, and sometimes we don't do it justice when we don't read the whole text. I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. If you see me holding this thing further and further away, this is just uh, one of the issues in my life when you are no longer 25 years old. We'll, we'll just say it that way. Verse 19, Acts chapter 11. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyrene, Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And then he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus... I, I love the name, by the way. I dare one of you to name your children Agabus. It's just kind of cool. Um, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit 
that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. I like to set the table uh, here for just, for just a moment. You see in verse 19, it says, so that those were scattered abroad because of the persecution that began with, in connection with Stephen. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 6, and you remember when the first deacons were ordained to serve the people in the church in Jerusalem, Stephen was one of those godly men. In Acts chapter 7, you are also mostly aware that Stephen was brutally and violently murdered for not renouncing his faith and then for speaking and sharing the gospel. He was murdered. So then, if we continue briefly, um, if we continue, forgive me, I am continuing, in uh, Acts chapter 8, we begin to see what God is going to do through the church in Jerusalem, but not without some trials and some trouble. In Acts chapter 8, you know that the Ethiop Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And we begin to see that people other than Jews are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay, and in Acts chapter 8, it doesn't um, raise too many eyebrows. But then... Um, you know that Saul is converted in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this crazy vision. Remember that God drops down, God drops down the sheet and all these four-footed uh, animals uh, are in the sheet. He has this vision. And then Cornelius is having a vision. And you know what that culminates in, that, that he is to go to Cornelius. The men come and they take him. And these Greeks hear the gospel, and they know that they're supposed to be hearing the gospel, and they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So now we have these Gentiles coming to know Jesus, and listen, this, and this is a very instructive to the passage here. Peter gets called on the carpet, okay? Peter gets called back to headquarters in Jerusalem, and he said, what is this craziness that we hear, Peter, that you are sitting down with these um, you're sitting down with these Gentiles, you're eating barbecue, you're, you're, eat, you're sitting down, you went to a pig roast, you're sitting down with these sinners, you're, you're eating food that's forbidden, you're telling, them, you're telling us that these people are, what is going on? And here's what Peter does. Peter goes through and recounts the entire story, but if we backed up just a couple of verses, listen to what Peter says to the elders in the church. He says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, I love that, well then, <laughs> and uh, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This verse is so awesome because the church at Jerusalem, which is made up of all Jews, is even though there's going to be some bumps in the road, even right here there's a glimpse that the church might get this right, but not without some pain along the way. That is how we enter into uh, that is how we enter into the narrative here. If you're a note taker, I think one of the key phrases in this entire passage is as the believers were making their way or as they were making their way. I just jotted that down. That just stood out to me and I jotted that down. 
So we've set the table for just a couple of minutes, and we'll spend the rest of our time. I'm going to serve you a four-course meal today. Uh, I hope you're all ready. You're ready for lunch, okay? Pastor said I only had about an hour and a half or so to preach. So, so I'm going to set a four-course table here today. In, verses, uh, in verse 19, we're going to see that the believers were experiencing extreme circumstances. Just like in 1 Peter, where we're currently going through the series here at the Garden Church, um, these people were being scattered. They were the diaspora. They were believers being persecuted for their faith. In verses 20 and 21, we're going to see the explosion of the gospel. Verses 22 through 26, we'll see encouraging discipleship and leadership. And then in verses 27 through 30, we'll see some extraordinary, and I truly mean extraordinary, uh, generosity. But look, looking at verse uh, 19 and even 20, what are the two circumstances that these believers are experiencing that are so difficult? And this really uh, stood out to me. And then we have to bring it forward to 2015. They were experiencing persecution, extreme persecution, by the way, and prejudice. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem had come under intense persecution. They were being forced from their homes, they were losing everything, and they were fleeing under the threat of beatings, imprisonment, and even the loss of their lives. Well, if you've been in church uh, for any amount of years, you're like me, you hear these stories, you've read the epistles, you've read the Acts, and sometimes you expect what's coming next, and we just kind of take this in stride. These people were dying, they were losing their lives. Um, we become so familiar with the text that I believe sometimes we can lose the importance of the reality of what real Christians were going through here and how they responded. Um, if you see where they are being sent out to, uh, well, we talked about the fact that Peter refers to them the same way. Um, and the key, the key phrase here in verse 19 is, as they were making their way. Think about this. As they were losing everything, leaving their homes and living as refugees, what was their response? If you see immediately, their response was that the gospel was the priority, not a priority, the gospel was the priority in their lives. I don't know, um, I do not know how that resonates with us in 2015 as believers in the United States of America. How do we wrap our brains around that fact? And I'm not going to be... Um, I'm not going to be critical of believers or critical of the church this morning, but how do we wrap our brains around that kind of persecution when the entire history of our country, most of us have, have lived with this unprecedented freedom to practice our religion, to share our religion or our faith with others, and to move about in our country forming churches and Bible studies however we see fit. I, I was having a hard time. How do you communicate this uh, to folks in a meaningful way? Well, I did, um, I did something that um, I don't know if all dads do, but I called one of my children. I called our daughter, Melissa, and I asked her this question. Uh, Melissa works for Sat7 USA, and the, this missions organization's um, uh, main goal, their, their desire, they get the gospel into the Middle East through satellite TV, mostly where missionaries can't go or it would be extremely dangerous for us to go. They're a Christian organization that gets the gospel into the Middle East, many places where it's illegal. I asked her if people were being persecuted like this today. And of course, you are aware with the um, proliferation of social media, and you may even, if you're on Facebook, um, um, Sat7 posts regularly. Some of you may have even seen the uh, Jesus tent 
if uh, on television or on some news reports. But I asked Melissa, what's going on now in the Middle, in different parts of the Middle East? And she shared with me that um, a, a journalist, a well-known journalist from Egypt, went to Iraq on behalf of Sat7. And he went to Mosul, he went to Irbil, and he went to find the refugee camps that the folks from um, Karrakesh and from Mosul had, they fled their homes in fear for their lives, the ones who, you know, not all of them made it out. And um, they went to Irbil where it was, it was a long journey, but it was a little bit safer there, and the refugee camps were set up. And you see this sea of blue tents everywhere, and in the middle of the blue tents, there was this brown tent, and it was called the Jesus Tent. And that was where all the children went. And Isam Naji, when he arrived there, wasn't sure where this camp was, but God led him there, and he found it on his first day um, in, in the country, in Iraq. And he went, um, and his goal was to talk to the children. And I don't do this very often, but I, had to, I didn't write the quotes down on something else. Um, but when he found um, the gate, he couldn't believe his eyes. He had gotten to the location where he really wanted to be. And here's what happened. He went the next day to interview some of the children. This is what helps us get our brain around this level of persecution. The kids came running, and they took his hands, and they took him to the tent of Jesus, where they sat, they talked, they prayed, and they laughed, these children who had lost everything. He said, getting to know these kids... They, this is a literal translation from Arabic to English. I actually got the real transcript from Melissa. That they are having a big, profound understanding of what's around them. And they are so forgiving to their enemies who expelled them from their homes. They are the face of Jesus. How are the believers in Acts chapter 11 responding to their persecution? Fast forward to 2015. How are believers in Iraq responding to this level of persecution? Most of the kids come from two areas in Iraq before this displacement. I said a Karrakesh and, um, and Nineveh Valley and Mosul. Listen to what one 10-year-old girl said to Isam. She replied that we just wanted them to know the real peace of God that shall open their hearts to the light of Jesus that will change their mind and their life as well. Ten years old, this is how she finished. I forgive them, she said. For the sake of the ISIS terrorists who had wreaked havoc on the lives of her family and friends, she said, for the sake of Jesus, I forgive them. Now, Isam knew, of course, that this, that this did not come um, solely that this kid was connected to a family and he couldn't wait to meet her parents. And he went and met her parents and listened to this. The parents talked about the time they were expelled forcibly from their home. What meant for them was um, only the safety, what, excuse me, what was important to them, was only the safety and the lives of their children. They didn't think about anything else except for that. Said so the parents also spoke and said, we forgive the terrorists for what they did. This is, how, this is how we wrap our brains around life-altering persecution. How, what do we do? What are these believers doing? The gospel is still in the forefront. The love of Jesus Christ is still in the forefront and, and of their lives. These people, these children are our heroes. So not only was the church in Acts chapter 11 uh, experiencing this kind of persecution, and when they did, and you say, Charlie, well, how do you know that all of that's true? You told us a bunch of stuff here. I said, 
at the end of verse 19, it's very interesting. We have two groups of Christians here. He says one group is speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So we have some believers, some Jews leaving the church. They're speaking the word along the way only to Jews. But verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And we'll continue. Um, I, the other thing that the church was experiencing and beginning to experience, think about this, the first century church was experiencing, learning how to deal with religious superiority and racial prejudice. Look, nothing is new under the sun. This Jewish church in Jerusalem, these people loved Jesus. They were risking their lives. The first group here in verse 19, the Bible doesn't say they're doing anything wrong. They're doing, they left their church doing what they thought they should be doing, but because of their religious training, they would only share the gospel with Jews. I will only share the gospel with people who look like me. I will only share the gospel with people who kind of think like me. I will only share the gospel or I will only have fellowship with people who come from my kind of church. That the first century church was dealing with the things that we deal with in 2015. And then you see what the Bible doesn't tell us that these other guys were from Cyprus and Cyrene for no reason at all. Right. Cyprus is an island about 250 miles and a boat ride north of Jerusalem. As Cyrene, um, Cyrene was in um, what is now present-day Libya in North Africa. So they're saying these guys who, although they came out of the Jewish church in Jerusalem, certainly were of a different ethnicity and maybe even a different um, ultimate culture. And some people argue about that. They're saying, was it just the Hellenists or was it the Gentiles at large? And I do believe the reality of what we're saying about the text here still stands true that one group would only share the gospel with people who were like them because they had not yet grown in their faith to a different place. But then there were others. They were troublemakers. I like the troublemakers. I go way back with trouble. I was a troublemaker before I knew Jesus. I want to be a troublemaker now while I still know Jesus. But these guys, listen to what it says. They began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Let's stop here for just a moment because I asked God, um, I really did ask the Lord to, um, to give me maybe just a little bit of a different viewpoint here as I, as I shared this with you. I've studied this for several weeks. By the way, all the snow all these weeks is my fault. Every time I'm scheduled, every time I'm scheduled to preach somewhere the last three weeks, it has snowed. Yeah, so the snow is my fault. So I've had plenty of time to work on this, if you're wondering. But so I asked God for, for really for a fresh word this week. And you know what he said? At, at the, look at the end of verse 20. And this is where I will confess my sins and be transparent. I'm only good for about a minute with that, by the way. But he says, um, they were, and I'm, and, and I'm not showing off. There's real meaning here. Um, it is, Elusan Iangeliad Menoi, Iesu Kuriad. They were preaching the good news of Jesus the Lord. Now, listen. Sometimes we run the risk of turning the gospel into a thing to be grasped, 
Oh, I said I was confessing my sins, not ours. I said we. Sometimes, and I wonder where I lose my passion for sharing the gospel with people because I'm, what I, sometimes I'm reduced to sharing my, my theology or I'm reduced to sharing what I believe or I'm obeying God. None of those are bad things. I am not preaching. I am not sharing some set of facts that can make someone a better person. I am sharing not the gospel. I am sharing not a thing, not a thing to be grasped, but a person. It's Jesus Christ. They were preaching the good news, which was Jesus Christ. The good news is a person. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, and I have to go back there and remember who I was and who sometimes I can still be. In verses 6 through 11, Romans chapter 5 says, I am weak that I am ungodly, that I am a sinner, and that apart from my faith in Jesus Christ, I am an enemy of God. We wrestle with that. Sometimes we don't want to be a believer, but we don't want to be an enemy of God either. We just want to be cool because in the end, God's cool and everything's going to be all right. No, everything's not going to be all right. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. It says, but God shows his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died on the cross. His blood was shed. He experienced pain. While he was all God, he was still a person, a human being. Christ died for me. This is a person. This is personal. This is emotional. This is life-altering. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been made right, we shall be saved by his life. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a system of religion or something to make us better or something that just saves me from hell. I must remember that I am weak, that I am ungodly at my best, that I am a sinner, and that apart from Jesus Christ, I am an enemy of God. That is not, I am destined to experience the wrath of God. Why do I go through all of that in a room full of what I would assume would be mostly believers? Because somehow these persecuted Christians in the beginning of this, in this passage here, this was in the forefront of their minds. They had this passion within them that was not dying down. The threat of losing their lives and losing their homes and everything that they knew to be normal. They weren't just looking out for their own safety and well-being. The gospel is what was first in their lives. Now look what, the Bible, look what God does with this. What does God do here? He says that, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. I love this. I didn't preach this a couple months ago when I, when I first started uh, uh, teaching this passage. The hand of the Lord represents God's, prov uh, God's protection and God's presence. You see, where the gospel is being preached, God is present. In, God is present. He was providing for their needs. God was protecting them. God was protecting them, and he was present there with him. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number of people were coming to Christ. If we want to see large numbers of people come to Christ, 
We must be sharing the gospel. We must be, see, I said it all, see, even in my language. We must be sharing Jesus Christ with others on a regular basis in the forefront of our hearts and minds as part of our lives. How do I, Charlie, that sounds kind of harsh. You're sounding kind of like all out here. Do you really live that way? No, I fail regularly. But verse 19 tells us as they were making their way, this was their lifestyle. So even experiencing extreme persecution and trying to figure out religious superiority and prejudice among different ethnic groups, not unlike what we experienced in the United States of America in 2015, and as one of the reasons I was so excited about coming to the city, as I look out over this congregation, I see white, I see black, I see Asian. I love being in the city. This is the essence. This is the essence of what the gospel does when hearts and lives are changed and we become God's children. This is the result of that, the Garden Church. This is why I'm so excited about being here. Continue, Charlie, before you get distracted. Um, but what we continue to see here, as they were making their way, God's hand is with them. Tons of people are getting saved. The hand of the Lord was with them. And then the news of this, and here, watch this. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Headquarters found out what was going on. Oh my goodness, more Gentiles are getting saved. Lord have mercy, here we go again. We thought we had dealt with this. Now we got a whole bunch of them getting saved. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Watch this. This is where the church gets it right. We are so hard sometimes on ourselves and on our brothers and sisters. Uh, and even as church planters, we can turn our noses up at the established church, which is foolish. The churches who are sending us out and loving on us, right? Uh, I refuse to turn my nose up at the established church and be self-righteous when I read this. It says, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Well, did they send him off to Antioch to uh, spy things out and see what was going on? Can't believe it, man. They got this kind of people in the church, people getting saved. They got these kind of people getting saved. What in the world is going on at Antioch? They got it right. They sent the right guy, they sent, and they sent him intentionally. How do I know that? As we continue to read in the passage, it says, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, Barnabas didn't come in talking about this or that. Barnabas, in the spirit, witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to God. Barnabas gets there, and he, what he sees is the grace of God at work. If I had read the first five or six verses of Romans chapter 5, we would see that now that we've been justified by Christ, we stand in God's grace. It is, I stand as a believer in God's favor, and nothing can change that. From the time that I come to know Christ, I am standing in his favor, and I will always be standing in favor with God because of who he is. Barnabas witnessed the grace of God in the lives of these Gentile people, okay? So he rejoiced and began to encourage them. This is where we see, this is where we see the great discipleship and great leadership. The church gets it right. So Barnabas is there with them, and it says, and why, here's how we know they sent the right guy. They don't just put this stuff in the narrative for filler, by the way. Sometimes we just read over stuff and we keep going. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now that last phrase, I believe that that's not a repetition of verse, tw of, um, of verse 20. Um, excuse me, uh, of verse 21. 
I believe that because of what God was doing and because Barnabas went there and because Barnabas did the right thing, I believe even another large number of people were saved. I have absolutely nothing to base that on except my interpretation of the word of God. So you can challenge me later on after church or buy me lunch and we'll talk about it. But I had to slip that in there, right? So, so, but what I believe is that people outside the church were witnessing what's going on inside the church, and Barnabas was a godly man. The church in Jerusalem gets it right. Gentiles are coming to know Christ, and God's doing something awesome. And by the way, Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city. Hey, that's what the word just sounds kind of cool, cosmopolitan. It, there were about half a million people. It was considered um, next to Rome, in the, uh, next to Rome itself, in the Roman Empire, it was considered the greatest city under uh, Roman rule at that time. Uh, it was kind of where east meets west, and it was on the Orontos River, which flowed down. It wasn't a port city, but it was not far. It was only about 10 miles from the ocean. There were about half a million people there. They had this place called Daphne Park, where you could go and get involved in any kind of sin and debauchery that pleased you. So it had, it had all, of, um, all of the sin and the lust that any big city would offer. It also had a plurality of religions. Uh, there were several cults there. There was um, kind of um, an up-and-coming, an upper-middle-class Jewish community, and they were allowed to kind of practice their faith there because they kind of had favor in the city. So being in Antioch could have been um, no, not much different than living in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Baltimore. Uh, so you kind of get a flavor for what's going on there. God said he was, God wanted to save souls in that city. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And as we continue, he says, uh, and this is great. And by the way, this is where you see outstanding leadership. I called it something else uh, a minute ago, but it's good leadership. Uh, uh, good discipleship, great leadership. And when he had, uh, excuse me, and he left for Tarsus, all these people are coming into the Lord, uh, Barnabas is discipling them, and he leaves. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Listen, this was so instructive to me. God never intended for us to do this thing alone. Whether we're planting churches, serving God, starting a Bible study, starting a relief ministry, you want to feed people who are hungry, you want to love people in a certain part of your community. God never intends for us to do this alone. Barnabas had the wisdom. The Bible said he was smart, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, right? It says, he left and he went to get Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church. Now they're a church, Ecclesia. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. What a great, uh, what a great Sunday school class this morning prior to this. Called out ones, a group of people whom God was saving and calling out to become his church in the city of Antioch and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, this is great. You think, oh, that's where Christians comes from. Listen, the people at Antioch were a bunch of Smart Alex, yeah, save yourself there, Charlie. They, uh, they were, and, and I identify with that. I, I've shared with some of you that I am a lifelong recovering smart Alec, and I'm not there yet. But when, by them giving the Christians, that was most likely, that was most likely not a term of endearment. It was supposed to be somewhat derisive. It wasn't until about 100 years later that the term actually caught on and became something positive. See, the, the people in Antioch, 
they would make fun of people and give, and, and, and give them names that just kind of mocked something about who they were, if you looked a little different or acted a little different. So like, I don't know if some of you are smart Alex like me, I can remember sitting up with my brother when we were children, and we would fall out of bed, busting our sides, laughing, making fun of people late at night. And sometimes we did. And sometimes my dad would come upstairs and tell us to be quiet, and he'd go back downstairs and we would start again. So dad would come up and down like three times, and finally on the fourth time, we're just busting our sides, mocking people, which, by the way, is very sinful, okay? Um, but, but we were doing it with great glee. And finally, about the fourth time, Dad would come up and he would just spank us because it was the middle of the night and we wouldn't stop. Well, the people at Antioch, maybe they weren't that bad, but they were kind of like that. So they were called, first called Christians at Antioch. And it says, and, and, and this is something I think that is very instructive, and I love it here at the Garden Church and, and I pray to God that, and, and I know that we'll be faithful in this regard. You know what? They were intent. They were serious about discipleship. They met. He went and got Paul and brought Paul back. He said, man, I can't do this by myself. And he brings Paul back, and they met with the believers, and they discipled them regularly for a whole year before they moved on. This was just prior to uh, Paul's first missionary journey. So this church is planted in Antioch. God is moving, exciting things are going on, and I love, I love what happens in verses 27. Uh, I love what happens in verses 27 through 30. Um, some prophets come, and they say there's going to be a horrible famine. Now, by the way, I went back and I checked, and it's not that hard, I, I'm not that bright, that during the reign of Claudius, you can check secular historians, and there was, um, there was a famine uh, not too long after this was written. And it was a, a considerable famine. Um, and so when they say all over the world, it could have been their known region of the world, or it could have been the whole world, but there really was a famine during the reign of Claudius. But um, the prophets come, and they say there's going to be a famine, and that they're going to have this great need. And the church, the church plant, right? Not the church at Jerusalem, the church plant, who's only been around for about a year, look what they do. They don't even wait for the famine to start. This is the extraordinary generosity that believers have, knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, they said, and in the proportion, verse 29, that any of the disciples had means, each one of them determined to send for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Now, uh, I, you know, um, I used to um, maybe not be so crazy about saying this, but this is why I am a pastor in a Southern Baptist church and why we do things the way that we do. What the believers in Antioch realized in the first century church was that together we can do much more than we can do alone. And listen to this, this is so cool. There were probably people in the church who made a lot of money and there were probably people in the church who didn't make much money and they said they all gave as they had means. It was not equal giving, but it was equal sacrifice. It was equal sacrifice. Those who had little gave a little. Those who had gave much had much gave a little more. And I love that about what we do in a cooperative program at Southern Baptist Church is getting the gospel all around the world. You know, next to the Red Cross, Southern Baptists have the largest relief effort uh, going around the world in our relief ministries, helping people in times of disaster. And it is all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is where it comes from. Each one giving as they had means. The church was being the church. The church in Jerusalem, the church back home, they got it right. They sent the right guy. 
But listen to what, let's not, what the most, is most instructive to me in this entire passage is right in verse 19, as they were making their way. Regardless of the circumstances of your life, regardless of the circumstances of my life, the challenge and the question is for you and for me, is the gospel, is sharing Jesus Christ with others, the love, the message, encouraging people to be converted and to confess their sins and avoid the wrath of God and know the love of Jesus, is that going to be in the forefront of my life and yours regardless of the circumstances of our lives? It's so easy when hard times come. It's so easy. I heard a pastor preach a great message the other day, a short one, by the way. That's why it was great. And he said, he's talking about the disciples being in the boat and the storm came and they were scared they were going to die. And pastor said to us, you know what? The storm cannot be the story of my life. The storm cannot be the story of my life. It's Jesus calling me out of the boat. That, what is Jesus doing? So here are these people in Acts chapter 11, their lives are in peril and at risk. And I'll say it one last time, the priority is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why God did something great there. That's why they experienced God's presence and they experienced God's favor, and that's why people in large numbers came to know Christ, because the gospel was first. I hope and I pray that the Garden Church continues, because that is the heartbeat of the Garden Church, and I promise you, as long as God allows me, and we are faithful, we want to be faithful, that will be our heartbeat in East Baltimore as well. Let's pray, and then we'll continue with our service. Father, this morning, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you for who you are. Father, I pray that the challenge is one that encourages us, Lord, and wraps us up in your love, that people need to hear the gospel. Father God, people need to hear that Jesus loves them, that you came, that you died for us, that you shed your blood, that you rose again from the dead, that we might have new life. That is the message, and regardless of the circumstances of my life, Father, forgive me for my daily and weekly failures, but Lord God, this should be the beat of my heart on a daily basis. Father, I pray for the believers here at the Garden Church, Father, that regardless of the circumstances of their lives as they make their way in life, God, that the gospel will be something that continues to break their hearts. And I pray the same for myself. And Father, for a friend who may be here, Lord, who does not know you, maybe today will be that day that they are convinced, Lord, that they no longer want to be weak, Father, that they no longer want to be your enemy, but they want to become your child and know the God who loves them more than anyone else. Father, your love and your mercy for us are great. Today we celebrate that, and we celebrate it in the name of Jesus. Amen.